And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets, so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end, it will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come, it will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers for himself all nations and collects all his own, his peoples. The word of the Lord. We uh, continue our series on the book of Habakkuk, and uh, we have learned that this book is unusual uh, in that, unlike other prophets, Habakkuk is not simply relating a message from God to God's people, but he is actually recording a conversation he is having with God for our benefit. And so we've learned that God wants us to bring our questions and doubts and struggles directly to Him because we are in relationship with Him, and He wants to hear what we're feeling and thinking and the questions that we are wrestling with. We've also learned that sometimes those questions are answered in ways that we cannot comprehend or certainly struggle to accept. And so there's a resolve on Habakkuk's part, which should be an example to all of us, to, to wait and to stick with God and to continue to invest in relationship with God even as we wait for explanation and clarification from Him. Uh, you might remember that Habakkuk's problem was that God was using a ruthless Babylonian army to address the sins of Judah. And our passage today is the first part of God's answer to Habakkuk when he was saying, God, you are pure and, and, and good, and how can you use such evil to address a relatively, in his mind, was a, was a lesser evil in Judah. Of course, we know evil is evil, and there's some of the change of perspective that needed to happen with him. But he's asking that question, God, how can you do this? How can you send a Babylonian army, a Chaldean army, to Jerusalem? And God answers him in two parts, and this is our text today is the first part. The rest of the chapter will be the rest of the answer, which is that the evil of Babylon will be punished, and we'll deal with that next week. But first, God tells the prophet how to survive this trial that's coming, this Babylonian invasion. And God's answer is, the righteous shall live by his faith. In verse 4, the righteous shall live by his faith. In other words, those who are in relationship with God, the righteous who are right with God, will survive the time of God's using evil for good by trusting Him. That's the answer. Habakkuk asks God, how are you going to, to help us get through this pain and suffering that the Babylonian invasion will inevitably bring into our lives? And God's answer is, trust me, trust me. Now this phrase the righteous shall live by faith is quoted three times in the New Testament, and we will actually touch on all three this morning. It is arguably the phrase that best explains the essence of the Christian religion. So it's well worth our time this morning to understand what it means. What does it mean that the righteous shall live by faith? 
So first, I'd like us to consider the fundamental contrast between faith and pride. Fundamental contrast. Second, I'd like us to see how faith provides us with existential hope. And finally, I'd like us to look at the practical implications of faith for our endurance. So fundamental contrast, existential hope, and practical endurance. So we'll start with the metaphysical. Who's excited? We'll start with the metaphysical. We'll move to the existential. Excitement is growing. And we will, we will end with the practical implications for our endurance. So there should be something for everybody, okay? You might just be a little, need to be a little patient to, to find it together. Okay. When we talk about faith, and I've been a Christian for, you know, 20-some years now, and I've been a pastor for most of the time, and, and I know, I know that when we religious people talk about faith, to many people, it feels like we're talking about some religious loophole. Can you identify with that? Maybe you've been a Christian for too long, and, and you know what faith is, and you understand these things, so it doesn't, doesn't feel like that to you. But there's a lot of people that hear us say faith, and they feel like, well, is it just something that God arbitrarily decided to demand from us? And he says, you have to have faith for me to give you whatever blessings we expect from him. And it seems to have no relation to real world. And few of us understand why faith is elevated above other virtues. Why faith and not other things. I'd like to show us this morning, and especially if you are in that category where you're struggling to see what faith actually is and you see it as a religious loophole, I'd like us to, to work through our passage and find that faith actually is at the heart of reality and at the heart of our relationship with God. This is not something that God just arbitrarily elevated above other things just to get us to do something. This actually is at the center, at the core, at the heart of reality and the heart of our relationship with God. So let me hopefully show you that. Look at verse 4. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It, it is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. There's a contrast here. On the one hand, you have the righteous person, person who is accepted with God, he's in a relationship with God, and has the right view of reality. That's the one that lives by faith. On the other hand, you have the proud person, the proud person. He is puffed up or full of himself or, as the message puts it, bloated by self-importance. This proud person does not have a relationship with God. They're not righteous because he is so focused on himself and he doesn't have the right view of reality. Now look at verse 5. And if you're reading this passage for the first time, you may be startled by, by this turn because it starts with the righteous shall live by faith and talking about people being puffed up. And then verse 5, it says, moreover, wine is a traitor. How, how does he get there, right? Now, we know there are some preachers that 
whatever text they're preaching on and whatever topic they have, it's going to end up with, with talking about the evils of alcohol, right? Is this one of those examples where it's just this unthinkable turn and has no connection to anything else? I don't think so. I think there's a real connection. And the connection is that when a person is drunk, when we are under the influence of alcohol, our, our perception of reality changes. And so the contrast here is between a person of faith, a righteous person, and a puffed-up proud person who is deceived by his pride. So just like when you have too much to drink, you can be deceived into thinking that you are stronger or smarter and quicker than you really are, pride, too, gives us a false sense of reality. The proud person, for example, is never satisfied. It doesn't matter what happens in their lives. They're never satisfied. He's so full of himself, and yet he's constantly searching for something to fill himself with. Like death, Habakkuk says, pride has never enough, never at rest. The proud person is like, like a black hole that, that is always taking and absorbing everything in proximity, greedy to take more and more, and yet never able to give. So here's the contrast. You can live by faith or you can die by pride. That's the contrast. Live by faith, be in the right relationship with God, have the right view of reality, and that is somehow connected to faith, and we'll, we'll deal with that. Or, on the other hand, you can die by pride, have the false view of reality, inevitably get destroyed by that false view of reality, and not be in a relationship with God because you're so full of yourself. You can be in relationship with God by faith or be separated from Him by pride. You can have the right view of reality by faith or be deceived by pride. Now, this is a foundational, let me use that word again, metaphysical distinction. It has to do with what ultimate reality is. Faith is not an arbitrary virtue elevated for no reason. It actually speaks to the core of our experience of reality and thus our experience of God. Now, we're not talking about a religious loophole. We're talking about life and death and the nature of reality. We find the same contrast between pride and faith in the New Testament. So one of the three quotes from this passage in Habakkuk is in Galatians 3, verse 11. Apostle Paul understands faith in this way. He says, now it is evident, please notice he's saying it's evident, it's obvious, that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. It's, it's amazing that he says it's obvious that nobody can be justified by his works, by fulfillment of obligations, by doing something right. Now, Paul is not talking about the value of the law. We value the law. The law has a place in the Christian's life. The law is important. The law is good. But what Paul is talking about is he's saying nobody can commend themselves to God through their own obedience, through their own fulfillment of obligations. And he says it's obvious. He says it's evident why is it so evident that no one can be okay with God through their own efforts? Because the very attempt 
to justify yourself before God by your own accomplishments reveals the fundamental self-centeredness and self-absorption that is antithetical to having a relationship with God. What Paul is saying, it's, he's saying, how can a relationship with God work if all you bring into the table is your own efforts? You're not even looking to God. You're not even looking at Him. You're not even open to Him. All you bring is your own obedience. It says it's evident that nobody can be, justi- can be justified before God through their own obedience. Because if I say, God, you must accept me because of what I have done, what I'm doing is I'm refusing to acknowledge God even as I'm trying to reconcile with Him. It betrays my commitment to establish a relationship with God completely without God and purely based on my own efforts. This is the death-like, black hole-like, drunken pride that we see in Habakkuk 2. Faith, on the other hand, is including God, is opening yourself up to Him. It's accepting the reciprocal nature of the relationship. That's the contrast. And this is why Paul says it's obvious, it's evident. Nobody can be justified by simply bringing their own obedience to God because that excludes God. That's just a one-sided relationship, which is pride. You're still self-absorbed even if you're obeying. Augustine helpfully divides humanity into two categories, lovers of God and lovers of self. You cannot get any more clear and any more basic in describing our main problem. You either love God or you love self. Faith and pride, righteousness and sin, life and death. For us to really grasp the meaning and significance of God's answer to Habakkuk, that the righteous shall live by faith. We must see pride as not just a vice among many, a problem among many other problems, but as the essence of sin. To really understand why Habakkuk is making such a big deal out of pride and sets it against faith, we need to understand that it's the essence of sin. What happened in the garden when Adam and Eve sinned? What happened? Did they disobey? Yes, they disobeyed. Did they not trust God? Of course they didn't trust God. They didn't believe Him. But what's the fundamental shift that happened? They've dethroned God. They said, we will be gods and not you. That's the change that happened. Through disobedience, through distrust, through the lack of... Yes, all of that. But fundamentally, what happened was, is pride. Sin is not lawlessness. It is lawlessness. That's one of the sins is lawlessness. But sin in general is, cannot be reduced to lawlessness and disobedience. Sin is godlessness. Sin is godlessness. God is dethroned, exiled, and replaced with self. That's what happened in the garden. This is what all of us are dealing with. And this is why pride is the essence of sin and is connected to any sin that you are involved in. This week I read an essay by Paul Kingsnorth. 
He's a, a British writer who recently underwent a remarkable conversion to Christ and abandoned his agnosticism and faith in human progress. And in this essay I read, he reflects on the triumph of self-centeredness in our own age. So he is commenting and critiquing what's happening today and the way we've elevated the worship and love of self today. But his comments can be looked at as the general diagnosis of the human condition. Yes, today it's becoming increasingly more and more evident that we haven't gotten free from traditional morality and traditional religion. We are more obviously worshiping self, but we have always done that. And so Kings North laments the effects of the long process of technological modernity, he calls the machine. He calls it the machine. Listen to what he says, and then let's relate it to the universal human condition. This machine, he says, is a material manifestation of an internal human desire for liberation, in which all forms are dissolved in favor of the final and only sovereign, the independent, rational individual freed from the obligations of history, community, and nature. The result of this entwined process of breakdown and liberation is that the sovereign individuals who make up what used to be society have no point of reference beyond the self end up being unable even to agree on the shape of reality. The end game then becomes the replacement of that reality by a new one, the technium, the metaverse, augmented reality, built in the shape of that confused, broken individual who believes that she, he, they are master of their own personal fiefdom, but have in fact become slaves to their passions, delusions, and felicities. What he's saying is, as much as it's relevant today because he's processing what's happening in the culture today, is also true of every sinner at any time. We have replaced God with ourselves. That's the problem. That's the diagnosis. We have replaced God with ourselves, and thus pride is the essence of sin. And when we replaced God with ourselves, our whole view of reality has changed. We don't see things right. And so like drunken people, we just wander around grasping in the dark for truth. Pride is the essence of sin, and it is the trajectory away from God, from life and reality. Now, as well as seeing pride as the essence of sin, we must also see faith as the essence of righteousness. The Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard said, the opposite of sin is... I wonder how you would finish that sentence. The opposite of sin is... He says faith. The opposite of sin is faith. He says this is one of the most decisive definitions of all Christianity, that the opposite of sin is not virtue but faith. If you define sin as primarily as lawlessness, as disobedience, then the opposite of sin is obeying the law, is virtue. But if you define sin as godlessness, the opposite of sin is what? It's godfulness, 
right? It's the presence of God, it's the presence of relationship with Him, reconciliation with God. And this is exactly how Scripture defines it. And it is impossible without faith. Because faith is openness to God, orientation toward Him and away from self. So let me summarize my metaphysical musings here for you on the contrast between faith and pride in Habakkuk by quoting C.S. Lewis. Lewis said, there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. Only two groups of people. There are people of pride and there are people of faith. There are people who say self is sovereign and there are people who say, God, your will be done. I will submit to you. Pride is on one side and faith is on the other. Faith is not just a religious thing, you see. It's not just something we came up with to distinguish who is a Christian and who isn't. Faith speaks to the very core of reality, very core of our relationship with God. Without faith, you cannot be right with God. Without faith, you cannot understand what's going on around you. And Scripture consistently teaches about that. Now, this is the point where our conversation turns existential. If Lewis is right, and I think he is because he is consistent with what we see throughout the Bible, if he's right, then we are faced with the contrast that defines our existence. On the one hand, we have pride, self-centeredness that leads away from God and inevitably ends in our getting what we want, which is existence without God. That's what every sinner wants. The Bible describes it as eternal death or hell. What is it? but existence without life. It's being judged based purely on our own accomplishments, justly and without mercy. On the other hand, we have faith, God-centeredness, that love of God that results in God's getting what He wants, our life together with Him, which the Bible describes as eternal life, not just eternal existence, but eternal life with Him. Now, I will assume, just for the sake of argument, that you have accepted this biblical contrast. I will assume that some of us have found ourselves in the first category of proud people. Now the question is, how can we transition from pride to faith, from self to God, from death to life? How can we quench our existential angst that is the size of a black hole and find hope and rest in God? How can we do that? How can we go from pride to faith? How can we go from self to God? Now let me take you to the second time our text is quoted in the New Testament. Look at Romans 1, verses 16 and 17. The Apostle Paul says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. 
For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Whenever Habakkuk 2.4 is quoted in the New Testament, faith means faith in Jesus Christ. It gets focused in the New Testament. Whenever Paul, or we'll look at Hebrews a little bit later on, whenever it's quoted in the New Testament, it's not just generic faith, it's faith in the person of Jesus Christ. Here Paul says that the righteous shall live by faith in the gospel of Jesus, this message that he came, he lived, he died, he rose again in our place, and that is the power for salvation. Faith in Christ is the entryway into relationship with God, is the right view of reality, is actually bringing us into life. Because if our fundamental problem is our love of self, the solution must lie somewhere outside of ourselves. Our faith must not be something we can manufacture, but something that we can exhibit in response to what God does for us. One writer said that psychologists say the hardest thing to cure is the patient's attempt to self-cure. The hardest thing to cure is the patient's attempt to self-cure. So what can take our eyes off ourselves? What can destroy our pride and give birth to faith? Now look at what God is doing in the days of Habakkuk. He's bringing judgment, and he is using evil for good. That's his answer to Habakkuk. The self-centered response to that word, to that message, would be to avoid judgment, to avoid discipline, to avoid anything bad happening to us. But the response of faith is to go through it. This is very different. And it tells, this is why God says the righteous shall live by faith. Because the response of faith is very different and it requires surviving that. It requires going through it and not avoiding it. You know, there were other prophets in Habakkuk's time and Jeremiah's time, right before the Babylonian invasion. And some of them confidently proclaimed that God will never bring the Babylonians here. Don't worry, they would say. Peace and prosperity is, is going to be okay. God will never bring the Babylonians here. He will never destroy the temple. He will never destroy the city of David. And that is the response of pride. God will never do this. God will never do anything like that. Because in my view of reality, that is impossible. Why would God do that? And yet, faithful prophets like Habakkuk and Jeremiah oppose those false prophets and says, God, God said and God will do it. Jeremiah, in fact, in, in Jeremiah 27, he says, he says, don't resist the Babylonian invasion. Serve the king of Babylon and live. Now imagine hearing that. As a Jewish person in Jerusalem, the Babylonians are coming, and the prophet of God, Jeremiah, says, don't resist it, serve this evil king and live. What he's saying is go into the judgment, go through the judgment, and trust God in it. And this is exactly what God has done in Jesus Christ. Jesus joined us on the trajectory toward death and judgment and he went through it in our place. He didn't avoid it. He didn't go around. He went through God's judgment in our place. And so he can offer salvation to all who believe in him. 
Go to God the judge, just like the Jews went into Babylon. Go to God the judge without any excuses, without any justifications, and find that judgment, your judgment, has already been applied to Jesus Christ instead of you. And this is the time when every Christian gets goosebumps. I do every time I think of the gospel, every time I think of the cross, because this is an unbelievable solution. God tells us something that we would not believe if we were told. And he tells us, because that is how God works. On the cross, Jesus put to death your pride. And the empty tomb has become the delivery room of your faith. And that is how our trajectory is changed. How we can move from the category of pride into the category of faith. From death to life. In other words, by faith in Christ, we can become right with God. That's the gospel. By faith in Christ, we can become right with God. Listen to Martin Luther. You knew I was going to quote Luther when I talk about faith. Luther's life was radically changed when he finally grasped when Paul, the Apostle Paul, meant by his quote of Habakkuk 2.4 in Romans 1. Luther says, True Christian righteousness is the righteousness of Christ who lives in us. Once you get that, the doors of faith are opened. Once you get that the righteousness that you need, the true Christian righteousness, is the righteousness of Christ who is united with you, Luther says, we must look away from our own person. Christ and my conscience must become one so that I can see nothing else but Christ crucified and raised from the dead for me. If I keep on looking at myself, I am gone. Luther knows this. Every Christian knows it. If I keep looking at myself, there is no hope for me. But if I look to Him, which is faith, isn't it? If I embrace this new reality that Christ offers to me, that God loves me, that He came to save me, that He destroys my pride, that by His grace He offers salvation to me, I am saved. Christ replaces our pride with faith. We'll look away from ourself and see nothing but Christ crucified and risen for me, and we are reconciled to God and have life eternal. And just like the vision God commanded Habakkuk to record, the gospel message has been made plain. It's written in large letters. It is accessible to all. The heralds have been dispatched around the world. So come to Christ. Believe in Him. Only in Him there is salvation from pride. Only in Him there is life with God. Only He can mend your broken heart. So go to Him. Run to Him today, now, and embrace Him by faith. We have only one more New Testament quotation of Habakkuk 2.4, to look at. And while the other two passages from Paul deal with the metaphysical and the existential implications of faith, this passage, this, focus, this passage's focus is intensely practical. 
So let me read Hebrews 10, beginning in verse 32. But recall the former days, when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. So you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For, and this is the quote from Habakkuk, Yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Now here, God's answer to Habakkuk is applied to our endurance of suffering. This is This is for the Christians who are struggling under persecution, who are suffering, they're afflicted, and the message to them is, survive this by faith. Endure your suffering by faith. Habakkuk was asking, how can we survive the Babylonian invasion? And God answers, you survive by faith. And maybe too, you too are wondering, how can I survive this season of suffering and and uncertainty or pain or disappointment that I am in? And the answer is the same. The righteous shall live by faith. Trust Him. Survive and endure this season, your season, by faith, by believing in Him, by trusting in Him. Let me very briefly give you four aspects of practical endurance. First, trust Christ's grace. Trust His grace. We've already seen that our only hope lies in Christ, but it is a sure hope. Because of what God has already done in Christ, we can trust Him to not fail us moving forward. Romans 8, 31 and 32 says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him give us, graciously give us all things? What's the point here? If God is for us, and we know He is for us because of the cross and the empty tomb, if God is for us, He will see you through this season as well. Trust His grace. There's enough of it trusted to get you through this time. In a few minutes we will sing, those He saves are His delight. Christ will hold me fast. Precious in His holy sight, He will hold me fast. He'll not let my soul be lost. His promises shall last. Bought by Him at such a cost, He will hold me fast. Trust His grace. Trust His grace to continue to work in your life. Do not throw away your confidence now, no matter how dark it may get for you. Do not shrink back, but keep trusting in Jesus and His grace. He is the same Jesus who loves you and gave himself up for you. And he will see you through this season as well. Secondly, trust his word. Trust his word. God commands Habakkuk to write down this vision. 
and to make it plain, to make it accessible so it could be shared with other people. We have God's words recorded for us. Trust His promises. Trust what He says. Read the book of Habakkuk and see God's faithfulness even in the midst of a Babylonian invasion. We have God's words recorded in His book that is given to us. Thirdly, trust His church. Trust His church. The vision is given not just to one individual. The reason Habakkuk is recording this conversation is because he knows that this needs to be appropriated by communities of faith, not just by specific people, but by communities, by the church. This vision is given to us, not just to me, but to us, and we must wrestle with that vision together. And so when it says the righteous will live by faith, It's not only that every individual Christian must survive and endure by faith, but it is also that we as a church, we as a community must survive our suffering by faith, which means that we rely on each other as we suffer and as we endure by faith. There's this great story in Mark 2 where a paralyzed person is brought by his friends to Jesus. Do you remember that? They take the roof apart, and they lower him right in the middle of where Jesus is. And you know what it says? It says Jesus saw their faith. Do you remember that? Not not his faith, but I'm sure he had faith too, but their faith. The faith of the friends. Those who brought the man to Jesus, it's their faith that mattered. That's how he was able to endure So we trust. We trust the church. We trust each other. We rely on each other, and we know that when my faith falters, your faith won't. When I can't pray for myself, you will pray for me. And when you can't pray for yourself, I will pray for you. And when you are struggling and pulling away, we will pull you back, and we won't let you disappear. And so you hold on to each other. You hold on to the church even as you endure suffering by faith. And the fourth one is trust His return. Trust Christ's return. Trust His grace, trust His word, trust His church, and now trust His return. I don't know how much attention you were paying when I read the Hebrews quote from Habakkuk, but it is different. Habakkuk is written in Hebrew. Hebrews is written in Greek. The Hebrews writer is quoting from the Greek Old Testament, the translation of the Greek Hebrew, the Hebrew Old Testament into the Greek, and it's slightly different. Providentially, there is a shift, there is a change there that God is inspiring. And the shift is that it becomes He. Now, if you look carefully, you will see that in Habakkuk it says that the message, the vision will not delay. Wait for it, it will come true. But in Hebrews it says the coming one will not delay. He will not delay. The vision in Habakkuk 2 becomes the person in Hebrews. Amazing thing, isn't it? You start paying attention to Scripture and you realize that there's wonderful things like that that are there for us to to take by faith. Now, why? Why is that? Well, because the vision is about the Babylonians. The vision is about the restoration of Jerusalem. And that was a wonderful vision. But it's not enough for us. 
What we need is a full restoration when Jesus comes back. It's not enough for Jerusalem to be rebuilt, for the temple to be rebuilt. We need to be rebuilt. The world needs to be rebuilt. And so in Hebrews, the hope is now rooted not in just restoration of the earthly Jerusalem, but in the return of our King. He will not delay. He will come. And that hope, that trust in His promise to return, keeps us enduring. It keeps us faithful. It keeps us looking to Him and trusting Him even when it's painful, when it's hard, when it's disappointing. I was reading about uh, Shackleton's expedition, and every time I, I, every once in a while you come across these great stories of exploration, and you know, Shackleton goes to Antarctica, and this, this great adventure, and I turn into an 11-year-old boy every time <laughs> I read that. It's still in my heart. I still want to go, and I still want to explore and conquer something. I read about his expedition, and, and the part of that expedition was, and if you know, there was, there was a, a ship called Endurance, aptly called Endurance. It gets locked in ice and, and slowly crushed, and so they abandon the ship, they get on these little boats, and they try to find any way to, to be rescued, put themselves in the position of anybody, a whaler boat, somebody to rescue them. So they go, and is, you know, this, is, this is lasting months and months, and, and these, these men are, are at, the, at the very end of their endurance. And finally, this, this group ends up at Elephant Island, and they're thinking maybe this is their salvation, but it isn't. It's a death trap. So they're eating penguins, and they're just barely surviving there. And Shackleton notices that at a certain point, hope is disappearing. Men don't want to get up out of bed in the morning. They're, there's no hope. They're, don't, they're not thinking about their future. They're barely moving. They're dragging. And so he knows that without a plan, without a hope, they will all perish. And so he says, we've got to do something. He says, I'm going to take just a few men with me, and we're going to go to South Georgia, this island, where he knows there's help, but it's 800 miles away. Open sea, going through, through a passage and sea that is called Graveyard. And he goes, because he knows if he stays, there's no hope for them. But if he goes, and he hopes to reach South Georgia, but he knows that that will give hope to the men. And so he leaves and eventually reaches South Georgia in a, in a I think, Chilean ship, finally, then comes back with him and rescues the men after over, <clears throat> over four months of waiting on Elephant Island. But I thought about this, and I thought about how interesting that he knew that without a plan, without hope of rescue, we die. How can I endure if I don't know that something better is coming? But I do know. As a Christian, I know my prince will come. My king is coming. And so I can endure by faith in his coming. And it may be four months, it may be four years, it may be 40 years, I don't know. But I will wait for him. And as I wait, I will endure by faith in my Jesus, who will come for me.